Good evening, everybody. Thank you all for coming. Uh, you were lucky because there's still a queue outside that we couldn't admit. Um, my name is Waltraud Schäckle from the European Institute, and what you're attending, in case you are just here because it's such a nice room, um, this is a lecture on the series on the perspectives on Europe by the European Institute at LSE. The Twitter hashtag is hashtag LSESDG, like Sustainable Development Goals. And our Twitter handle, I don't even know what that is, is at LSEEI. And let me briefly introduce our uh, eminent speaker, which is an honor for us to have here, is Sirsuma Chakrabarti, who is the president of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, which is a development bank that was founded in 1991 basically to uh, accompany the transition of Central and Eastern European countries through bringing in private finance uh, uh, as well as public funds. Today the bank is active in about 30 countries and has expanded its geographical remit to Central Asia and to, well, what it calls um, Southern and Eastern Mediterranean, but it's also North Africa, uh, to be precise. Um, prior to his current role, Sir Suma had a position as permanent secretary in the British Department of Justice, but before that he was more or less always at the development side of things uh, in the Department of, of International and the Development Administration, uh, where he worked closely for to to in this capacity for the British government to accompany the transition of Central and Eastern European countries, but also former Soviet Union and the Middle East and South, uh, North Africa. So a stellar career, the only thing is he studied only at second best universities compared to ours, but he has a PPE from the University of Oxford, and then he had a development economics degree, an MA, from the University of Sussex, and he can't get much, much better. Welcome for, to the, the talk, and the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Waltraud, and uh, good evening to all of you. Uh, it's a great honor to be invited here to deliver this lecture tonight. Uh, I am sorry about my educational origins. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm delighted actually to be speaking here at the LSE. Actually, it's an institution, although I never studied here, of which I have some rather fond memories, uh, funnily enough. Um, really for what I might say some rather vicarious uh, reasons. Uh, first of all, because my wife actually did study here. Um, she was also a member of the LSE faculty in the late 1980s and early 1990s, uh, before she also, I'm afraid, went to the other institution that you mentioned, Oxford. Um, now, because of her association, I have rather fond memories of the LSE, sometimes a bit hazy. Most of them spent in the Beavers Retreat Bar, actually. But uh, I think, you know, it's a really great institution. I'm proud to be here. I even played football for this institution once or twice. Uh, I played for the LSE veterans team, never having studied here. They invited me to play uh, until they realised how useless I was, and uh, that was the end of that career as well. But third, my third reason, actually, for being rather proud of coming back to the LSE is uh, a rather odd thing. 
My wife and I became a marketing tool for this institution uh, in the mid-80s. If you actually ever go to the LSE library and you want to really dig out the old LSE prospectuses, if you look at the one from, I think, 1984-85, something like that, I think you might find a younger version of me and her uh, on the front cover. We're sauntering down Houghton Street, uh, having popped into Wright's Bar, no doubt, for yet another espresso. Um, and probably we're arguing about humanity's problems in our usual way. Uh, I'm, I'm actually still trying to work out, well, Trad, whether the LSE owes me some money for, a, for my image fee or something. Uh, they use my image without permission. Quite disgraceful, I thought. Anyway, anyway, I hope uh, tonight that uh, together with you, I can make a more useful contribution here um, at the LSE than I did in the 80s and early 90s. Still focused on the challenges facing humanity, how to deliver the sustainable development goals, and still focused on a question much debated uh, in past decades, the relative roles of the private sector and the state in the financing and delivery of those goals. But perhaps with a different answer, in fact definitely with a different answer, to that which would have been given in the 1980s and early 90s during that period of my past association with LSE. I'm going to start by explaining why I believe the new um, Sustainable Development Goals are an important staging post uh, in the thinking about the characteristics of economic development. Now, on their own, the Sustainable Development Goals actually have nothing to say about the means, in particular the balance between the private sector and the state in financing and delivery. So I also want to go on to describe really how we got to where we are in the debate on the means to the very point about the need, as we call it in EBRD, about the need for a new partnership between the state and the private sector. I'm going to then go on, and uh, probably be a bit dull at this point, go on uh, to give you a couple of concrete and rather detailed examples of what the partnership means in practice, using EBRD examples to illustrate my point, really because I think one needs to get to the detail of some of this to understand the partnership. And then I'm going to finish by describing how that new partnership needs what I call a visible rather than invisible hand to build it. So let me start by charting the sort of journey that international development folk like me uh, have travelled as a way of explaining how we got to the SDGs and the need for a new partnership between state and private sector. Let me begin with the goals themselves and then come back to the means. The Sustainable Development Goals, or the SDGs for short, uh, they were adopted, as you all know, by the United Nations uh, last month. Uh, You should have, I think, found a copy maybe uh, on your chairs, uh, at least to share. Uh, These SDGs uh, set the global development agenda for the next uh, 15 years. And by year end, world leaders, I hope, uh, will supplement these SDGs with a legally binding and universal agreement on climate change as well. Now, the SDGs are, in my view, a far better, uh, certainly far fuller, description of the full complexity of today's thinking on development than their predecessors, the Millennium Development Goals, the MDGs. Now, I should say I'm immensely, personally immensely proud of the old MDGs, the Millennium Development Goals, Uh, and this isn't just because I'm so old that uh, I was there at their creation back in 2000. That's part of it. But the eight MDGs, in my view, really introduced coherence and proper measurable targets to a development agenda that had previously been very short on both. They focused attention on rather crucial development challenges, such as eradicating poverty, obviously, but also access to education, basic services, and reducing child mortality. And they did, they did galvanise action and secured impressive results, in my view, in these and some other areas. For example, 
Millions of people have now been lifted out of extreme poverty, as you all know, largely thanks to rapid economic growth in China and India, but also because of similar trends which we don't talk so much about in sub-Saharan Africa. So I think we should all at least applaud, at least partially, the successful delivery of the MDGs. But we should recognise also that they represented only a subset of the challenges that we currently face. Indeed, the MDGs concentrated largely, though not exclusively, on social outcomes. Some key development priorities, infrastructure, energy, these were absent from the list. And yes, implicitly, they cast the state as the main actor in development, with perhaps a supporting role uh, assigned to civil society. We used to joke, uh, back in DFID, where I used to work, uh, soon after the MDGs were adopted, that there was a bit of bringing beverage to Africa in the MDGs. This was very much in homage to William Beveridge's contribution to the creation of the welfare state in the UK. And, of course, uh, this is another LSE reference, because William Beveridge was, of course, the director of this institution between 1919 and 1937. Now, the welfareism that I think was implicit in the MDGs was not because, back in 2000, we didn't know the importance of the hard economic sectors in development. Of course we did. It wasn't really because we didn't know about the importance of the private sector or of, a, or of the importance of an effective state. No, it was, in my view, in retrospect, simply much easier to rally public and civil society support in aid-giving countries in particular, like the UK, for these social outcomes and easier to get developing country governments as well, their agreement, if no one raised the role of the private sector or the need for better governance. So the MDGs, in my view, were good, but they were essentially a product of the bargain that could be struck at that time between the various constituencies. Well, I think the last 15 years has led to a much more honest discourse I think developing countries want the hard economic sectors on the list of development goals, and they're now willing to recognise explicitly the importance of inclusive and accountable institutions. At the same time, in the so-called North, it's becoming much more obvious that many government aid budgets are not expanding, and the private sector will have to take more of the financing and delivery strain of delivering the SDGs. So buy-in to the SDGs is also, I think, has been much uh, stronger than for the MDGs. There's been much more consultation with a wider set of constituencies, including, of course, the countries themselves, developing countries. And it's also brought new bodies into the mix. For example, the EBRD. We were not involved in the formation of the MDGs, but very heavily involved in the formation of the SDGs. I think that more honest discourse and that wider buy-in are enshrined now in the new expanded list of the SDGs, which are going to guide our efforts over the next 15 years. Now, we should really pay a lot of interest to what the critics say as well and answer their points uh, you know, with full force, in my view. Critics have been quick to point out that what they're about the SDGs is what they call a lack of discipline and lack of focus in these new SDGs. They say they're fuzzy, higgledy-piggledy even. And yes, I, th- I think if you take a cursory look uh, at the SDGs, they might indeed be right. They've suffered a touch of middle-age spread compared with the MDGs. There are 17 SDGs. They've got 169 associated targets. That's a sizable increase on the MDGs' eight uh, goals and 21 targets. But by themselves, I don't think those numbers tell the whole story. As I've said, I'd argue, firstly, that the 
SDGs do a significantly better job than the old MDGs of reflecting the challenges we face in development in, in all their complexity. And unlike the MDGs, the SDGs emphasise the underlying drivers of sustainable development, not just measurable outcomes, hence the increased number, hence the increased range of the SDGs. They focus now on issues as significant as inclusive growth, addressing inequality, building strong institutions, sustainable infrastructure, and addressing climate change. And they also involve middle-income countries in the development agenda in a way that was simply not the case with the MDGs. Another reason, I think, for a more comprehensive list of goals. But that does not mean each and every SDG should be an equal priority for each and every country. Uh, That way, in my view, madness lies. No, each country should determine for itself its list of priority SDGs and focus on delivering these. So provided provided we interpret this list of SDGs intelligently at global, at national, at institutional levels, then I would not be concerned about mission creep or fuzzy vision. Quite the contrary. Indeed, I believe the SDGs represent the best possible statement of all the complexities of economic development that we face today. Now, crucially, in the discussions on financing and delivery of the SDGs, the vital role of the private sector and well-functioning markets was acknowledged without great debate. Now, it wasn't always this way. So when I left university back in 1981 to work as an economist in the Botswana government, there had already been several major phases of development theory in practice. From the 1940s through to the 1960s, certainly, the state played a very large role in promoting economic development, particularly through investment in heavy industry. Import substitution at a time of foreign exchange shortages was always heavily stressed. The 1970s can best, I think, be characterised as a period focused on basic needs, uh, human capital development, some redistributive policies, but still with the state as the main actor. By the 1980s, frankly, a sense of gloom had descended, in my view, as many development economists recognised that the state-directed, state-financed, state-delivered model had shown quite modest results, really. And just as in some developed economies, notably, of course, in the US and UK, the neoliberal approach to development became the response. So all the talk of the 1980s when I started work uh, was of getting the prices right and getting the state out of the road. Uh, I even remember uh, one neoliberal evangelist on the World Bank board uh, going so far as to say that market failure was preferable to state failure. So at the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, at the end of that decade, and the creation of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, EBRD for short, that was in 1991, the market-based model of development held sway. There was a strong belief that the private sector could, in fact, do it all. The most extreme version of this approach, and there were some real extremists around at the time, would have the state doing very little indeed, not much more than performing what we would call night watchman duties, its public service provision being limited to defence of the country. Now, remember, of course, this was the time, this was the tail end of the Reagan and Thatcher eras. But quite quickly, in the 1990s, a new set of issues emerged that I think gave better colour, or even challenged, actually, that neoliberal consensus. Many of these issues were advanced by 
you know, really important, very much stronger civil society movement. Let me give you four examples of what I mean. First, neglected social costs from development could be neglected no longer. For example, build a dam, and one should take much more seriously than, than previously we had done, the interests of communities that were directly affected. Second, the gender dimensions of development began to be raised. What use was development that neglected the needs, the views, the opportunities of half a society? Third, the environmental dimensions of development process came to the fore. Rightly, we practitioners were asked, what steps can be taken to make development more environmentally sustainable? And fourth, I think it became patently obvious to many that a do-nothing or do-very-little state was often actually a stumbling block to development. States that avoided uh, environmental regulation or did little to promote the education of girls or were governed in the interests of a personality or a party rather than a nation, they were rightly regarded as anti-developmental. And without an effective state to protect property, contract rights, promote competition, uphold the rule of law, in short, to support markets and ensure social cohesion, making progress on what really mattered in development was going to be well-nigh impossible. That became recognised. So hence the search, I think, not for a return to the statism of the 50s to 70s, but at least the search for an effective state, alongside the emphasis on the private sector as the twin instruments for driving economic development. Now, the EBRD's own story, if I may, I think illustrates the journey on means over the last 25 years. Our purpose and modus operandi, I think, will tell you something about the shifts in thinking. We are a multilateral development bank, as Walter had said. We, like the World Bank, like uh, regional development banks in Africa, Latin America, Asia, we're also owned by governments, in our case, 64 governments, plus the European Union and the European Investment Bank. But we are actually quite different from other multilateral development banks in three respects that really reflect that time in history when the EBRD was created. First of all, we strive to work only in countries committed to multi-party democracy, political pluralism, and market e economies. And no other multilateral development bank has such an explicit political and economic mandate. By the way, the, the key thing here is the direction of travel. A country has to be on the journey towards markets, democracy, and pluralism. It doesn't necessarily have to have arrived at the final destination. Not that I think there is necessarily a final destination with markets or democracy, but it, it can get our support as long as it's travelling in the right direction. Second, our constitution, our constitution actually lays down that 60% of our lending must be to the private sector. It's currently running at about 80%. No other multilateral bank, with the exception of the International Finance Corporation, it's an arm of the World Bank Group, has such a deep knowledge of working in the private sector and for development purposes. And third, we're very project-based, providing loans and equity to corporates, to companies. We don't, unlike the other multilateral development banks, fill budget or current account deficits. And because of our projects, we know a lot about sectors and companies. Now, this holy trinity of differences, the focus on helping countries transition to open market economies, the focus on the private sector as a motor of development, and the focus on companies rather than government agencies, marks out the EBRD, I think, as an institution that reflected very much the key characteristics of the development consensus at the time. All the more so, of course, because as we started, we started in the command economies of Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union. 
Note, of course, that since then, as Walter had said, we've moved on to Mongolia, to Turkey, to Morocco, to Tunisia, to Egypt, to Jordan, as well as, at least I hope temporarily, to Cyprus and Greece. Uh, these have all been added to our countries of operations. So our geography now stretches from Casablanca to Vladivostok, and it uh, now includes countries that were never command economies, but where our shareholders believe that we can have impact. Next year will be EBRD's 25th anniversary. It's our birthday. That uh, trinity of characteristics is still there and embedded very strongly in our business model. And I believe that trinity of characteristics remains valid. It gives EBRD its distinctiveness and allows us to complement the work of the other multilateral development banks. But, and here's the important part of the story, we in EBRD have not stood still. We've learned a lot in the 25 years about the role of the private sector in the development process in the transition to market economies. And we've evolved to reflect the fact that the consensus on what constitutes good development practice is very different today than it was in 1991. EBRD today is experienced in a much wider number of areas that are now part of the mainstream in global development thinking. Just to give you some examples, leveraging the private sector to achieve development outcomes, years of experience in devising financial instruments to build sustainable infrastructure, long-running programs to help small and medium-sized enterprises, creating new jobs, enhancing skills, driving growth, sustainable energy, reducing waste, lowering carbon emissions, and also now promoting energy security based on the private sector and the blending of grants and loans. So we've become a rather powerful catalyst, in my view, also for foreign direct investment and the channeling of equity in private financial flows into emerging market economies. And yes, we're focusing much more, and I think rightly much more than we ever did, on inclusion, bringing more women and other excluded groups into the workforce and into businesses as well. That puts the sort of expertise we've gained over the years right at the heart, right at the heart of the new expanded development goals for our planet. In, indeed, I think the way we measure the transition to market economy, and that was something that uh, Nick Stern, Professor Nick Stern, who's of course at the LSE, he was our chief economist uh, some 15 years ago, that was very much something that he, he drove. The way we measure the transition to a market economy now takes in all of the shifts in development thinking of the last 25 years. So our methodology for project assessments has changed. It now takes account of the social, the environmental, and gender issues in the way it didn't before. And we've learned a lot about the role of an effective state in that process, very much from our unique vantage point. So that, too, now is part of our toolkit. So the EBRD now... I think, really reflects this shift in the development debate. It marries a private sector focus on financing and delivery of development goals to working with our countries of operation to building effective state responses. That's what I call the new partnership between the state and the private sector. And we want to put all that learning, that expertise, that approach to work in the financing and delivery of the sustainable development goals. Now let me illustrate here what I mean in terms of the new partnership in extremely concrete terms for two of the new sustainable development goals. And I've picked out infrastructure and energy efficiency. Now, forgive me, if I'm going to move now from the macro to the micro, I'm going to get quite detailed to make the point about the interrelationships between state and the private sector very crystal clear. Let's start with infrastructure. This is a development goal that's conspicuous by its absence in the MDGs, and it's something that EBRD actually knows a lot about. We know that annual global infrastructure needs are currently estimated to be somewhere in the order of uh, 3.3 trillion euros. But we also know that only 2.4 or 
uh, trillion euros of that need is currently being met. So the shortfall of just under a trillion euros will have to come from somewhere. Frankly, it's not going to come from the public sector on its own. It just cannot raise those, that sort of funding. So only one-tenth of that shortfall can also be covered directly by international financial institutions. So we've got a huge gap here. And the private sector, in my view, in our view of our EBRD, can help to fill this infrastructure gap. Whether it is in uh, small-scale municipal infrastructure projects designed to improve service delivery in quality in urban transport, in water, in wastewater, in solid waste, or in larger transport and power sector projects, EBRD now works to bring about the kinds of reforms that make effective partnerships with the private sector possible. Now, that means mobilising private sector capital and know-how to raise standards and deliver value for money. It means working with private operators to improve business conduct, conduct and commercial practices. It means reforming tariffs to move towards cost recovery while protecting the poorest. And it means establishing a sound legal framework for public-private partnerships and concessions. Let me give you an example of this to make this real. The Romanian water sector. When the EBRD first began working in the sector in the mid-90s, typically a municipality water system operated with a chronic financing gap. The operations and maintenance were often costing much more than the annually negotiated subsidies granted through the national and city budgets. Over time, we had this problem. Water system assets, pipe networks, pumps were neglected by deferring maintenance, leading to even lower service quality. This, in turn, of course, reduced uh, users' willingness to pay for their water services, thus leading to even lower uh, revenues. This sort of downward spiral was self-perpetuating and extremely damaging for development. To reverse this, EBRD introduced public service contracts. This approach is now used in over 200 municipal-level projects across not only water and wastewater services, but also urban transport and district heating utility companies throughout Eastern Europe. It's established the the public service contract as a linchpin agreement between a municipality as owner and the public utility company as service provider. The contract defines the quantity, the quality, the service standards, using a sort of predefined regime of performance indicators that must be met for the municipal utility company to earn the full support payments from the municipality. And you get proper regulatory oversight of such contracts to keep all sides honest. What this structure does, what this partnership does, is it locks in a virtuous circle that underpins lasting funding sustainability. It also creates the essential creditworthiness of the utility company, allowing the EBRD to make non-recourse loans to that same utility. Now, EBRD started to invest in the Romanian water sector back in 1994, beginning with the cities of Brasov, Yassi and Timisoara, three secondary cities of about 300,000 people. Now, since then, the bank has made some 20 successive loans to Romanian water utilities, often together with commercial lenders, to achieve deep systemic impact across the sector. The improvement to water quality and reliability in Romania has been significant. I don't know if there's anyone here from Romania. I know there's one from my office. He can probably attest to this. But what has really happened is EU water standards have been attained, as has 24-7 reliability. The increase in revenues over the last 20 years has also been important. The revenue that uh, following investments in modernised water systems, coupled with this public service contract approach and the introduction of cost-reflective tariffs as well. So today, 
what we have is a level of self-financing capability of the local entity. And that is, of course, the ultimate test for a bank like ours. Have we, are we leaving behind a legacy where the institution we've worked with is self-financing, has a capability, can do this job without us? So it's been really, really good, I think, in terms of what we've done. Romania's water utilities are looking at partnering with private sector operators, and I think doing that will help them to achieve deeper efficiency gains through deployment of advanced metering, leak detection technologies, and so on. Now, if I turn to the second case study, energy efficiency, I think we have to recognize that we can only deliver the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, in the field of energy by being much, much more ambitious about our own goals. And to do that, we need to mobilize the private sector. So we in the EBRD, we've scaled up our contribution to the global fight against climate change by sharply increasing our own level of green financing for the next five years. So we're aiming to invest 18 billion euros in the field over the next five years. That's as much as we've invested in the same area in the last 10 years. Now, based on the historical leverage of EBRD climate finance, this would mobilise about, about another 60 billion euros for a total project value of about 78 billion euros. Huge leveraging. And looking at our overall business model, we would expect between half and two-thirds of that financing to be in the private sector. In the energy efficiency field, of course, we work with a very broad range of private sector clients. They include local uh, industries, large industries with foreign strategic sponsors, SMEs, commercial banks, uh, equity funds, project developers, utilities, and individual homeowners through residential energy efficiency credit lines. So the EBRD has developed this broad range of climate finance products to address energy efficiency and renewable energy opportunities across sectors and countries with very specific characteristics. And so these uh, instruments, such as direct industrial energy efficiency projects with medium-sized and large enterprises, building on effective combination of energy audits and financing capacity, indirect energy efficiency and small-scale renewables projects, (coughs) municipal infrastructure energy efficiency renewables projects, and also supply-side energy efficiency project financing, including power generation rehabilitation, (coughs) transmission, and distribution efficiency. So all of this, in addition to renewable energy project financing and some financing now for adaptation too. It's a good example, in my view, of how we work to promote public-private solutions. And again, to bring this alive, let me give you one project in Kazakhstan that we recently financed. And renewables potential in a country like Kazakhstan was identified a long time ago, actually, over a decade ago. But the necessary legal framework to attract foreign investment into the sector was simply not in place. The EBRD worked with the Kazakh authorities for several years to improve the renewable energy law, including the development of appropriate feed-in tariffs for a range of technologies, for wind, for solar, for biomass, for hydro, and an analysis of the social impact on spending of, uh, on renewable energy. The net result was a new law that was adopted in 2013 which allowed us to start building a private sector pipeline. The involvement of the state was absolutely necessary to give confidence on the framework to private investors and to kick-start the development of the necessary support infrastructure, such as the equipment suppliers and wind tower maintenance companies, the confidence that, that the renewable industry needs, really, to develop in a country. So with this in place, the bank signed, just back in June... Kazakhstan's first-ever large-scale solar plant. And I'm really, really proud of it because it's a long, long journey of trying to bring the private sector and the state together. 
So enough of these detailed case studies. I hope they give you a sense of the new and complex partnership between state and private sector that I, I personally believe is going to be required to deliver the SDGs. And I could have gone through many more of the SDGs and come up with similar points about the partnership. But the key issue I think I want to end with really is how to build that partnership. In many countries, there is no dialogue between the state and the private sector. At the extremes, we've seen cases where the state captures the private sector and cases where the private sector, frankly, captures the state. These are not stable equilibria. For markets to function well, which, of course, is crucial to the delivery of the SDGs, we believe there need to be clear rules of the game for how the state interacts with the private sector. There needs to be a level playing field and platforms for constructive dialogue between state agents and private business. Now, the EBRD... We're an institution that is owned by governments with a public policy mandate to foster transition. And we're a major investor with a private sector focus model, as you've heard. So I believe, actually, the EBRD is rather uniquely placed to actually help forward the kind of partnership between state and private sector that can lead to sustainable development and growth. So how do we do this? What do we do on the ground to make this happen? So we do this in a number of countries through what I call the investment councils. We establish investment councils, very independent of both state and private sector. (coughs) These councils provide a platform for a private-public dialogue that brings together government policymakers and business representatives together to consider obstacles in the business environment, to share ideas on how to remove or lower those obstacles and build mutual confidence and trust. So the EBRD now sponsors investment councils in six countries, supporting the establishment of independent professional secretariats that identify the constraints, the obstacles, and help to broker the solutions between state and private sector. That's at the national level. We also do the same, build similar platforms uh, to tackle sector-specific issues, such as SME development, how to attract foreign investment, how to address problems of food security and the development of the agribusiness value chain, Now, platforms like these are helpful, but I wouldn't want to leave you with the impression that they're some sort of cure-all. For them to work and for real partnership to be formed, governments have to be ready to listen, to make good policy choices, and to think long-term. And the flip side of that coin is that private sector businesses have to be ready to think beyond their own narrow interests and be part of a discussion on how to foster competition and a level playing field for everyone, which is not a natural for most private sector operators. Now, EBRD can't force either party to do that, of course, but we can use our leverage as a major financial investor and our expertise in creating a sustainable framework for markets to nudge the state, nudge the private sector clients towards reform and better governance. Two years ago, some of you may have heard about this, there was a landmark transition report produced by the EBRD. It detailed uh, how countries where the EBRD invests had gotten what we call stuck in transition. And after that, we decided to launch the Investment Climate and Governance Initiative. We saw that as a main stumbling block to transition, that it was poor governance at the state level and at the corporate level. Businesses don't get started, thrive and expand where the state doesn't provide certain essential public goods, such as sound regulation, market-supporting laws that are implemented fairly by honest and well-trained judges and a transparent procurement system. Now, trust, trust can't be established without the means to address abuses by public officials for private gain. In other words, frankly, corruption. 
The Investment, Climate and Governance Initiative aims to support reform-minded governments and the bank's corporate clients to increase transparency, good governance and healthy competition. Now, we do this in a number of ways, in different ways in different places. We provide advice on legal reforms, we train judges, and we also set up alternative dispute resolution mechanisms. We reform also the public procurement system, which is frankly where a lot of the corruption stems from. And we put in place corporate governance action plans at both state and privately owned companies that want to optimise performance and attract commercial finance. Corruption and misgovernance are, of course, huge problems that the EBRD doesn't have the power or the means to tackle alone. But we can be part of the solution. In a country like Ukraine, together with partners in the public and private sector, we've put in place an independent business ombudsperson that establishes a recourse mechanism for businesses with legitimate claims against state or sub-state entities that infringe their rights. This is, I think, one key ingredient for fighting corruption and the epidemic of corporate raiding that you see in too many emerging markets that impedes private sector businesses and the economy as a whole. And in Ukraine, the good news, it's working. Other countries are noticing and asking for our help in setting up such institutions. So as you can see, I think my basic point is a better investment climate, better governance to fight against corruption and tackling the nitty-gritty of the obstacles that impede private investment These are all part of that new partnership between state and private sector. Now, to to conclude, let me just return to this lecture's title and the original purpose of this talk, developing a partnership between the state and the private sector. Both are important. Neither can succeed, frankly, in isolation from the other. Now, it's no secret that in many countries around the world, I think we are witnessing a backlash against the private sector and markets as a whole, and banks in particular. Now, that's, I think, understandable. There were excesses aplenty uh, in the years running up to the financial crisis, and I would say definitely that the fruits of growth should have been shared far more equitably than they were. But the backlash can also go too far. The answer to too much financial deregulation and inequality is, in our view, not more state, not uh, less market, It is a more effective state, effective state institutions and better functioning but also well-regulated markets. So the key here is the balance between state regulation and the invisible hand. States need a dynamic and productive private sector to generate jobs and growth. The private sector, of course, needs an effective enabling state. So the lesson I take, the lesson I learned, I think, from the shifts in development thought and practice over the years and the tacking from one end of the spectrum to the other end of the spectrum is that obviously we can't know all the answers at any one time. Sometimes, actually, I'm not even sure we've always asked the right questions. So we look to you, to students, to academics, or just the concerned general public to help us. Some of you in the audience tonight, I guess, will be from countries where the EBRD invests. Many of you will be citizens of our 64 shareholder countries. You, too, can make a contribution, I think, to this development agenda. It might be in the form of research that throws new light on the problems that we come up against on the ground. But I wouldn't be surprised if some of you go on to work in a multilateral development bank like the EBRD even. And I trust also that you understand that there are many other routes that I've outlined here to have a really important career in development, in trying to get the sustainable development project delivered. There's, of course, civil society, a very important partner of ours, but you could also go back and work in your home countries or in government, Uh, And if you do, please don't forget the state's vital role in providing the right conditions for private businesses to thrive. 
But I do hope that some of you will give some thought to another pathway, that of the private sector, that of the modern private sector, at its best, generating wealth, but creating new opportunities for men and women, and fostering sustainable and resilient economic growth. There has, in my view, and it's been a long career, there has, in my view, never been a better time to get involved. There's never been a better time to forge that new partnership. The new SDGs, I think, do set out an ambitious but credible programme of change. And it's now up to all of us to deliver that. Thank you very much. So we now have about 25 minutes for um, discussion. And um, I, we have roving mics. You should introduce yourself and ask questions and not make long statements. So who would like to go first? Over there at the, in the, at the wall and down there. Hi, thank you so much for coming tonight. Is this working? Sorry, I cannot hear you. Closer, is that better? Yeah. Perfect. My name is Reese Sultani. I'm a postgraduate student in global health, and I have a two-part question. Um, given that poverty has had since the 2000 MDGs, um, and the end of extreme poverty is in sight, what has motivated the SDGs to start focusing on all forms of poverty instead of combating the other half? And my second part question is, what is the role the IMF is going to play in the SDGs in terms of funding for um, a lot of these different projects that are going to come into place? Thank you. And the gentleman there in front. If there was another person, yeah, that's fine. Sorry. I have not forgotten. Hi. um, My name is Alice Alebo, and I'm from the Treasury. Um, you started off by kind of speaking about some of your experiences before uh, going across the EBRD. So, for instance, um, out in Botswana and in various parts of the civil service. I'd just be interested to hear a bit more about kind of the challenges you faced, um, for instance, on the Overseas Development Institute program um, while you're working at DFID and now kind of working in an in- international financial institution and also kind of the progress you feel that you've made in each of them. And the gentleman behind, <coughs> and then we'll answer, and then I go. Hi, my name is Marie, and I have, I'm from, I'm working with the Energy Union program, and I have two questions. The first one, in the UK, with the withdrawal of government subsidies schemes, is already a reality, and uh, this PPP, this private-public partnership, are already a reality. How do you think the European Bank is going to help the UK? And the second one, what do you support crowdfunding for this type of new energy efficiency schemes? Thanks. Thank you. Shall I stand up or? As you prefer. Okay. Um, why don't I go over there? <coughs> Try and answer. Thank you for three excellent sets of questions. Um, first of all, uh, on the question of, you know, the MDG project is uh, half completed. Why not complete that and rather than just start creating a new set of things? I think it's a perfectly good question. Um, and one of the problems in the international system, of course, is you know, finish a completer uh, problem. Uh, we don't tend to do that. 
What I'm encouraged by, though, is the fact that the, the MDGs that have not been completed have not been lost. They're in the SDGs. So we've still got to focus on those things that haven't yet been finished off in the MDG list. They're in the SDGs. They've got more targets, actually, than they had before underpinning them. So the agenda is still there. The issue I look at particularly is this question of how you're going to finance delivery uh, for some of those uh, old MDGs, new SDGs going forward. Because when the, when the MDGs were created, we were moving into what I call a, a really rather, certainly in the UK, an extraordinary period of uh, reflowering of interest, really, in development and financing of that. With, um, that's certainly their government pushing a lot more financing into development thing. And that's continued under the coalition government and now into the new Conservative government too. But that isn't the case in all uh, of the major, sh- uh, major countries. That aid, aid, grant aid that you need for some of those sectors, particularly for the social sectors, has been falling away. So there is a, a, an issue there. And to the extent we can help with private financing, we will. But you can't do that for all those uh, issues. I think you will need grant financing. So I don't want to leave anyone with the idea that grant financing is completely off the agenda. And should just do. So I think that's still around as an issue. On the IMF, um, well, the IMF, of course, also took part in this. But this agenda for the SDGs is very much a World Bank, Regional Development Bank, and bilateral uh, agency, bilateral development agency agenda. But the, uh, the IMF does play a role in a number of these things. I mean, to give you an example, I think uh, Christine Lagarde has made a really big push on inequality at the IMF. I mean, this is not something the IMF looked at. It didn't look at gender quite often in budgets, uh, gender implications. It started to do things like that. So it's also about building accountable institutions. Now, the IMF, I think, has a big role in building up uh, certain ministries and central banks to make sure that those are much more accountable and inclusive than they ever were before. So it has a role as well, not as a direct deliverer quite often, but through its power of analysis, power of advocacy, I think, much more than in the past. And I think, you know, I tip my hat to Christine because I think she's really tried to push that agenda in a way that never happened before at the IMF. Um, You asked me about uh, my experience, I guess, uh, over my career, um, and uh, the various facets of this career. I mean, uh, when I did the ODI fellowship and I went to Botswana immediately after university, my, career, my interest was in economic development. I had no idea what my, the rest of my career was going to be. I mean, did I wake up at 21 and say, I'm going to be permanent secretary or you know, president of an institution? No, of course not. I was just interested in economic development. And I was very lucky to go to Botswana. I mean, this is pure, luck plays a big part in your career. Because it taught me about effective states, actually. Botswana, some of you may know, it's uh, one of the most effective states in, uh, in uh, certainly in sub-Saharan Africa, but actually in many, amongst many emerging markets. It's dealt with a huge natural resource boom through diamonds, dealt with it very well without the problems many other countries have had from that natural resource boom. So I learned a lot. You know, I'm uh, rather fond of saying that, uh, perhaps too fond of saying that, you know, um, I learned more in Botswana than Botswana probably learned from me, frankly. Um, It was a great training ground for me, uh, and uh, I I think actually it shaped a lot of my thinking uh, going forward about how development works, how institutions work as well. The civil service, I've done a number of different parts of the civil service. I think um, there are two parts of my career, really. One is this development part, and working very much in DFID and uh, with the international institutions. I spent some time with the World Bank and IMF in the late 80s as well. And that's been a very strong part of my interest. In my, if, if you like, that's my anchor. Uh, and that's why uh, I'm in EBRD as well now. But I was also always very interested in public service reform. So um, 
The reason I gave that example of the public service contracts in Romania is because it's actually was something, something close to that, was something I was very much involved with, helped create, which is the public service agreements in the UK. I felt, in the, in the case of public service reform under the Blair government, that you know, taxpayers, citizens and non-citizens, people who live in this country, were not uh, getting enough accountability from the state for the services the state was delivering to them. And somehow we had to break this. So, yes, of course, it created a target culture and all that, all the usual criticisms of that. But I think it really did break this idea that, you know, you weren't going to be challenged for it. It was very much a results-based agenda uh, with a lot of opportunity for challenge as well in it. And so public service reform and, and development, uh, those roles are very different from what I now do at EBRD. EBRD, the big difference, I think, I was trying to describe to Walter before we came down here, I have a sort of two roles now when you're president of a multilateral development bank. You're part political leader. You do this sort of thing. Now, a different permanent secretary might be invited to do this, but unlikely, probably the minister would be invited. So you have a, a sort of strategic shaping the strategy role very directly, and you have to explain it publicly much more. But you're also CEO, which is a bit like being head of a government department at the civil service. So you've got, you've got both roles really into it, and it's quite different. And you, have, of course, now have... I now have 66 shareholders. Uh, whereas when you're running a government department, you have one shareholder, usually, or two if you've got a coalition. So that's quite different. Um, and, uh, you know, I gave a speech in America a year ago now about reshaping the multilateral system and why it's in some ways, however bright, however intelligent people are in the system, it's sometimes easier to reshape a government department. Minister of Justice, 95,000 people in the UK, easier to reshape that system to try and provide a better criminal justice system than often in a multilateral system because you have more constraints. And you have to recognise that, but you have to work within that. You also have to appreciate that multilateral does things that actually many bilateral agencies cannot do. It can operate at scale, it can operate across many countries, it can share lessons much more. And you can be quite innovative, but within that overall uh, framework, if you like. So very different experiences, but I mean, there's some golden thread going through it all. And I think for me, it did start in Botswana, in terms of my interest in development, but also my learning about how institutions function and how you can set direction. Um, and now on uh, renewable subsidies and so on. So, I mean, you know, I have to be very coy here because, uh, of course, uh, the UK is a major shareholder of the uh, EBRD, so I'm not going to start commenting on different shareholders' policies and so on. There is this, this debate. It goes on not just in the UK. So it goes on in many countries. What do you do when you have, uh, you know, budget needs and you have expensive subsidies uh, going on? So I'll give you a classic example from one of our countries of operation where this happened. Um, if you don't do it carefully, you can actually cause problems for the industry that's already invested in it. So Bulgaria would be a classic example of that. Uh, three years ago, there were major investments by the IFC, by the Americans, and by EBRD in the renewable sector. Bulgaria changed its policies in a very similar direction. And that did cause immense problems, because some of the projects that were viable before were no longer viable. <laughs> And so that, now we've got to a better place in that debate with Bulgaria, but it shows you you have to think very, very carefully what's the right moment to withdraw a subsidy and so on. So we don't operate in the UK anyway. It's not a country of operation for us. Uh, but we watch this debate, and it's not just confined to the UK. This debate is in every country I go to. It's about. So let's go to the middle here. In the white shirt, the person in the white shirt... 
Thank you for the lecture. My name is um, Stephen Ma from the Department of Social Policy, and my question is that: Do you think that public partner, sorry, public-private partnerships, um, given their emerging presence, um, further fragments global governance systems um, due to a lack of unified um, agendas and capacities? For example, um, the Global Fund and the Gavi Alliance have proved to be very effective. However, one could argue that um, it's reducing the WHO's role as a global health authority. You're very hard to understand. Yeah, I couldn't quite understand that. Sorry, I didn't catch that. Can you <laughs> say that again? Briefly and loudly. Sorry. Do you think that public partner, public private partnerships, um, further fragment global governance systems? Further fragment global governance systems. Yes. PPI. Mm-hmm. Then there is in the middle here and then down here. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Thank you very much. My name is Federico Burlon. I'm a sustainability manager with Tesco and LSE um, alum. You said businesses uh, have to look beyond their short-term interests. I was wondering, can you, what advice do you have for practitioners to help their businesses play their part? Uh, good evening, sir. Thank you for your lecture this evening. My name is Lamade, and I work in finance. So my question is basically, um, for the achievement of these goals, emerging nations are very important, obviously. But in lots of these nations, there is bad governance in the government. And I know you mentioned briefly about corruption. Um, so private companies have two choices here. They can work with a corrupt government, or they can try to go it alone. What do you think is a better strategy in such situations? Thank you. Okay, I'm not uh, on the on the PPP's um, point. I'm not quite sure I get the point which you're making uh, about global government systems fragmenting. Uh, the public-private partnerships that I was talking about, uh, very much. I think I, I, I think I, I sort of understand, but the ones I was talking about is much more to the sort of project level. You know, hospitals in Turkey. You know, should they be built with PPPs or road projects in Kazakhstan, so on? I don't think those uh, fragment global governance. If you're talking about the creation of special purpose multi- uh, international institutions, like, for example, in the global health area, that we've had a number, uh, for example, the Global Fund for AIDS, TB, and Malaria, does of course have this private sector, government, and NGO, uh, civil society sort of governance, which is a, was very new at the time. I don't think that has actually fragmented global governance so much, but it has created, I think, interesting issues within that institution, for example, of how you have governance, effective governance, because, uh, you know, these are things that are very much in the public domain. It created sort of dynamics that these different interest groups were looking for different things in the institution when they came to governance. And there was no ex-ante discussion, I felt, really about a common governance framework. Uh, in the case of that institution. Now they've got one, actually, because they had a couple of scandals, difficult, difficult days, and they've got to that point. So I don't think it's necessarily fragmenting um, the international system. I tend to, I'm afraid, be a bit of a traditionalist on this. I think it's a, you know, a good thing that governments, particularly, tend to own these multilaterals. But where I'm a bit more of a radical is I think these multilaterals should uh, work better together. So I think one of the things that we didn't discuss tonight is, for example, in the case of EBRD, we're now in North Africa, as, you, as I said earlier. Shouldn't we be working more closely with the African Development Bank, which doesn't have a private sector arm, uh, and we do, we're clearly that's where we're strong, should we create some common platforms? For example, in the SME sector, 
in North Africa. That's something we really want to do together. In the past, the rhetoric would have been, you know, you, you kept your own region firstly, you didn't really interfere with each other, and you didn't really work that much together. You might co-finance a lot of project together, but you wouldn't create common platforms necessarily. That conversation is changing, actually, and I think that's the more interesting part of this debate. Can we really, if we really want to help the countries on the ground get the sort of services, the instruments they need to, to develop, then can these multilateral institutions do things which uh, were not in the playbook for the last 50 years? And that's, I think, something we are beginning to explore more and more. Um, governance and corruption, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, I highlighted Ukraine. Uh, and I think there's two parts to this, uh, if I may. One is the role of institutions like ours. Uh, and the other is the issue you raised about private businesses, what, what to do in this situation. I think for institutions like us, who are very close to the private sector, know the issues from the private sector, if we continue just to have private conversations only and never raise the flag publicly, in the end we're doing a disservice to uh, society generally and to the system generally. Let me use the example of Ukraine, because Ukraine is an interesting case for EBRD. We were the largest institutional investor in Ukraine over many, many years. Very successful projects, actually. But Ukraine wasn't making a systemic change because of governance issues, because of corruption issues. We finally took a decision that my first visit to Ukraine, probably not something you'd necessarily advise me to do on first visit anywhere, but uh, February 2013, that we could not carry on like this anymore. We had to actually speak up, and we had to speak up for private business, your point. So why was it that I went there in Kiev and made a statement on TV, actually, that we are simply going to have to reduce the amount we do in this country, uh, and we're going to focus very much on the, uh, on the private sector, and not do anything in the public sector going forward until some things have changed on the corruption front? It was because uh, a major p uh, private sector company, a Ukrainian company, an agribusiness company, Nibulon, actually, I mean, it's, in, it's public knowledge as well, came to us and said, look, we've been raided by the authorities, the customs and tax authorities, 144 times in one year. Now, out of 365 days, I mean, you wonder what the management was doing most of the time. It, wasn't that, it was mainly fending off these raids. And the raids were all about, can we have some money, please, for the latest political campaign? In this situation, I think you have to have a very honest and public debate. And, of course aided, obviously, by the changes in Ukraine. We have now moved forward, hence the example I was able to give. And I can now honestly go to uh, private investors from abroad, uh, as well as domestic companies in Ukraine, and say, in these areas, you must, uh, you can invest safely. And, of course, if you invest with EBRD, it's more, you're safer than others, because we have preferred creditor status, and so uh, a government is likely to make sure that uh, our, our partners get repaid and so on. But it, it's really about choosing the right moment to become quite public, I think, and then helping the private sector decide which are the areas where it's safe to invest and likely to get change. And Ukraine is, I think, a very interesting story because I think its glass is now half full. There are still oligarchs around, of course, in Ukraine. There are still plenty of uh, people trying to indulge in nefarious practices and so on. But there's also a spirit of real reform of a government that's trying its best to reform right now, and we should be supporting those reformers including by trying to attract investors into the safer areas. That's part of the, uh, our job, I think, very much. There was this question from somebody managing sustainability in the supermarket. I'm sorry, I missed that, yes. Um, yes, and it's good to have you from Tesco here because um, I think a great example of this, how do you get companies to think 
longer term, if you like, the way you put it, and not just about the short-term profit motive. I would say is our energy efficiency work. If you went to a company and said to them, um, we want you to invest in energy efficiency, we think um, it's going to be really good for the planet, uh, well, you might strike lucky. You might find an entrepreneur who's going to think beyond his uh, own interests for his company and think planet. But you're more likely to succeed, I think, if you say, here's a technology, here's the investment business plan, and here's the payback period. By the way, payback period is pretty quick, two to three years. So actually, you can marry the long-term, the national, global interest with the uh, entrepreneur's own company interests. You've done that at Tesco, I think, very well. And that's been uh, the case with our energy efficiency credit lines. That's why they're so successful. That's why the take-up is so, so, uh, so quick. Um, because companies can see, actually, by reducing their energy costs very quickly, they can be quite profitable very quickly. The, re- the returns are very, very high. Uh, so that's an example. But you've got to show the link between the company's own profit motives as well as the planet. And that's, that's a trick that I think we have pulled off there. Okay. Uh, there was a person over here who had been very patient, and then I'll take some more. Um, hi, I'm Sarah Franklin. I'm currently pursuing a master's uh, in international development here. Um, I have three little questions. So um, mainly concerning sub-Saharan Africa. When you're talking of building partnerships between the public and private sector, are you talking of local private sector or foreign private sector? And um, in regards to foreign direct investment, once you've established that partnership, how do you ensure that the capital is retained within the invested country? And lastly, given that the private sector has mainly needs a profit incentive, how do you motivate it to actually invest in municipal infrastructures? Thank you. Thank you. Do I see? Don't here in the front, and then I put myself on the list. Thank you very much for the lecture. Um, My name is Pauline Krebs. I'm studying um, globalization, business, and development at IDS in Brighton. Um, I would like to know what you think uh, Western donors could learn from China in terms of private sector activities in Africa. From, sorry, from China's activities in Africa? Yeah, private sector activities in Africa. Can I also add a a question? I would like to press you a little bit more on this goals setting. I mean, when you earlier said we have 17 goals and, you know, targets attached to it in the three digits, I thought, yeah, that's Europe. Um, Because, as you know, Europe is also always good in EU, I mean, in drawing up uh, goals, Lisbon goals, and then one doesn't meet them and draws up more ambitious goals. Agenda 2020 now. Now, originally the idea was not so bad. One thought, well, opposition parties in in, in the member states can take that up and hold the government accountable to look, you look so bad in comparison to other member states on child poverty or gender equality, whatever. But it never worked. And so I wonder who are the addressees of these goals? Do you expect that there's any response in the public debate of the member states or in these countries? Who do you want to shame or blame or praise for it? Okay. 
Okay, the first um, sort of three little questions, as you put it. They're not little questions, they're big questions. Um, I'm unashamedly for both local and uh, foreign private investors. I, I think it's, you know, an institution like ours would fail, frankly, if we didn't try and build up the local private sector. It's very, very important. And it's really important to find instruments that can do that. So in many of our countries, you know, if you're working with SMEs, for example, uh, one of the things that we are trying to do more and more of is local currency lending. Because if you lend in foreign exchange and they're not exporting anyway, uh, why expose them to foreign exchange risks and so on? So developing instruments that can reach down credit facility lines and so on into local businesses is very, very important. Part of the issue, uh, I think, also there is building capability. We have a very interesting thing called the Small Business Scheme, uh, which tries to build uh, governance capability, management capability, you know, how to write a business plan, how to get it to a bank, how to get the bank to prove it. That sort of stuff is really, really important. So I don't, uh, it's not one, you know, one or the other, it's both. Foreign investors, of course, you need to attract, and it goes back to the thing question earlier about you know, trying to market certain countries better uh, to foreign investors. In February, we'll have all the Western Balkans prime ministers here uh, at the EBRD. It's a big investment forum. What are we trying to do? We're trying to market that as a region. Uh, if, and to foreign investors. Because too many foreign investors say to us, each of those countries other than Serbia, perhaps, it's just too small uh, as an investment destination. So what we need to do is provide projects that integrate economically this, these countries and sell them and market them to investors. And we are doing that with, of course, the leaders and business leaders from those countries. So I think you've got to do both these sort of types of things, really, one or the other. Um, how to ensure capital is retained in the country? Well, you know, development is rather littered with previous attempts to do this. Um, and, of course, it led to a lot of companies not investing in those countries. Um, so it's a, it's a really difficult thing. I think the best way to do it, of course, is to create a climate, investment climate, that makes them want to actually plough back returns in those countries. I would not slap government controls on repatriation of dividends, profits, and so on. That was tried. It was tried, and when I was uh, starting out, that was a common uh, approach. But it really led to, particularly in Africa, uh, a lot of companies just not investing. So I wouldn't go down that route. You have to have a much more attractive investment climate to want them to retain capital in that country. And there are, of course, as you know, some long-term investors in sub-Saharan Africa who have stayed there through the years because they've seen the investment opportunities, I think, made successes of that. How to motivate investment in municipal infrastructure? Um, this, in a way, goes back to the uh, question, uh, again, about uh, energy efficiency that I gave to our friend from Tesco. Uh, you've got to, uh, I think, find um, a return that makes it attractive. Now, in many, let's take a really poor municipality. Uh, we don't work in sub-Saharan Africa, but let's take a poor municipality in one of our countries. Let's take somewhere like Jordan where there's a bunch of, obviously, a huge number of Syrian refugees coming in to Jordan, into the north of Jordan, one-fifth of the population right now. Those municipalities in the north, they are, their municipal services are completely and utterly stretched. They clearly need investment. But how would we get the private sector to want to invest in those, thing, uh, in those areas? A lot here depends on the tariff policy. Now, if you're a poor municipality, it's going to be very, very difficult to set tariffs at rates that uh, don't, unfortunately, that make people, you know, um, make people poorer, in fact, because of the... So what do you do? You can move towards a tariff policy in that municipality, provided you also, with our project, you invite grants in. So there's no way we could finance municipal infrastructure in a 
in an area like that without some grant funding, fully grant funded, as well alongside our loan as well. That's the, that's the challenge. So to get the private sector into the poorer municipalities, we do need that mix of grants and loans, I think, much more. And that's what we work on um, as well, which is another reason why I think you know, it's very important that aid budgets don't get cut, uh, I would say, because of those sort of challenges. China in Africa, what could we learn from China in Africa? Um, this is a really big issue. Um, and in a way, I think the Chinese themselves have uh, made some points on this that are worth listening to. One of the reasons uh, the Chinese were able to invest uh, some 15 years ago, start investing heavily, I think, in, in sub-Saharan African countries, was that there wasn't much of a dialogue, really, about governance issues, institutional issues, and so on. So, you know, and there was a lot of resentment, I have to say, from Western donors who were trying to build institutions and with uh, sub-Saharan African governments. But those governments felt, actually, the Western donors were too intrusive, and it was much easier to work with China, which was less intrusive and willing to invest in those countries. The Chinese themselves, about two, two years ago, at a rather important African Development Bank annual meeting in Rwanda, actually, themselves decided that actually they'd gone too far with this. They themselves were finding the sustainability of some of those projects had been uh, questionable. And they themselves actually made a rather mea culpa speech, uh, I thought, about that. So there's some things to learn about, and there's some things to forget as well, I think, in that, in that process. I'm actually, in a way, more comfortable with the Chinese experience in, say, Central Asia, where we uh, work very closely. Because I think there you can see the Chinese companies and the state-directed development that comes from China trying to actually forge a much stronger partnership with both the governments but also private sector in those Central Asian countries. I think that's more of a model. And I'm very much hoping, for example, the Asian Infrastructure uh, Investment Bank, the new multilateral that's been created, that EBRD will be able to co-finance projects in the private sector and that some of the partners involved in that will be Chinese companies as well as companies from other, other countries too. So it'll be a good test of that, uh, of that viewpoint, I guess. Goal setting. Uh, where, who are the addressees of these goals? Um, the uh, reason I thought the MDGs, to go back to that, was a great success in terms of the addressees of these goals, it, 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 certainly in the UK, was it completely reshape the debate um, in, within the, with the wider public, actually. So why was Make Poverty History such as a great success? It was focused on the MDGs. It actually, you know, really connected to what people cared about and they could relate to. And that's, that's one of the powers of social outcome goals, particularly, I think, compared with hard economic sector goals. And I think it did raise um, the sort of bar for politicians. Why is it that it's now impossible for the, any UK government to cut the aid budget, actually. It's because that there's been a connection here that it would be a very unpopular move, uh, despite probably some people in the current government, uh, certainly some of the MPs, thinking it should be done. So I think it's possible, provided you can connect, connect the population in the West to some things that they care deeply about, and that's the beauty of it. Did it change uh, the debate in developing countries as well? Yes, it did in many of the ones I worked in. So it's certainly in the low-income countries of sub-Saharan Africa, uh, the MDGs were also very much an organising principle for the way government thought about 
uh, how it should do business, who it should engage with, uh, what it should prioritise. But it also skewed choices. There's no doubt about that as well in my mind. That, um, if you like, I think there was overfunding of certain areas of the health system. The AIDS uh, area was overfunded compared with TB, malaria and others because they weren't quite so connected to the MDGs in the same way. So it can lead to some perverse behaviour as well, which is again why I prefer a wider set of goals than, than we had before. Uh, but I think it's that connection is quite important. And then accountability. The reason I thought the MDGs were also important in the UK for the UK government was in DFID. What we did then was reorient our public service agreement to deliver the MDGs. That made us accountable. So the direct chain of accountability from countries through the aid organisation to Parliament was very, very clear. And that's why I think they, they lasted very strongly in the UK. Chance for two last questions. Perhaps I was wrong earlier with my 25 minutes of this. Person over there in the white. I thought you had a question earlier, but. Um, okay, and then the last is over there. Thank you so much. I'm Zahir Shah. I come from the IDS, Globalization Business and Development course. Uh, you mentioned. Uh, uh, slightly about uh, the way business should, uh, you know, uh, come out of the self-interest uh, agenda and obviously work for, with the private uh, public sector. Uh, but my question is, uh, don't you think that when we talk about business uh, uh, and public sector, there's a need to change the attitude of business uh, towards the society beyond the CSR. So who is going to address that and how it is going to be addressed? And secondly, how are we looking at the partnership between NGOs or INGOs and the businesses? Thank you. There was somebody high up. Yes, exactly there. Last question. Hi, my name is Ajwa Akwa, and I have a question in relation, I think it's probably linked to the last question, but it's to do with the private um, service, is it public service contract? You mentioned, um, you used the Ukraine example, but I was just interested to know if there has been any incidents where the European Bank has had to refuse to collaborate on a project because there has um, been, uh, I don't know, whatever um, contractors that you were working with did not adhere to the, the, the terms of that contract. And if you could give an example of how you've tracked. <laughs> I don't know if, if it's a confidential uh, issue, but if you could give an example, that would be really appreciated. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, um, just let me start with that one and come back to the other one. Um, Yes, there are plenty of examples. You know, from the stack of projects we do every year, 380, 390 projects a year, but that's the only ones that actually get through the door, if you like, and through all the filters before approval. There are lots more that we don't even start because once we've thought about them, once we've engaged with the potential partner, we've found problems and we don't want to engage. And there's been no commitment to change, perhaps, as well. Even projects we have financed and, of course, proved, you know, it's bound to happen. Some projects will go wrong. That's part of development. Uh, you have to accept that. 
Uh, actually, fortunately, very few of our projects have gone wrong because of the strong due diligence. But nevertheless, of course, some will do. And there we have pulled the plug. Yeah, we have pulled the plug. I'm not going to give you examples. It was a good try. But um, these are commercial and confidence quite often. But yes, we have pulled the plug and for, for the reasons you set out, because they haven't performed a contract or in their integrity concerns uh, came up, uh, all sorts of different reasons. But yes, uh, that has happened. And I think it's important that we are very clear with the private sector, uh, and this links to Zahir's question as well, I think, we're very clear with our private sector partners about what we expect from them. Uh, it's not a free ride. You don't work with us. And one of my colleagues does this beautifully in speeches. Don't work with us if you are not interested in sustainability, if you're not interested in uh, you know, integrity, good high, high standards of integrity. A list of things we want to see from private sector companies. How, um, how to get them to go beyond just corporate social responsibility uh, I think is really, really important. And this is a... I gave the example of energy efficiency. Let me give you another example, which is about gender. I, for many, many years, um, I don't know if some people here from Istanbul, um, if you go ride a, rode a ferry in Istanbul, uh, you would not find any female uh, workers on the ferry, nor would you find many female customers on the ferry. Now... This, um, you know, from the outside looked rather bizarre, actually, given that actually there's quite a high female labour participation uh, in the Istanbul uh, workforce. So what's going on here? And they felt unsafe. They also, a lot of female customers told us that actually they would feel happier if there were some female workers as part of the ferry company. That would give them confidence to ride the ferry as well. So what do we do here? Now, we can have a perfectly good project, frankly, even if we excluded that, that whole issue. But it would be an even better project and actually achieve even better rate of return for us and for the company if they could have female customers come on board, if they could attract them. Because actually they've, they've lost the whole segment of the market here by simply not addressing this. So that was a very fruitful com conversation with the IDO, the operator, to say, look, you know... Um, this is in your interest, in your self-interest as well, but it's also a really good image thing that you can then market, and by God, they have marketed it heavily. They have uh, hired quite a few people now, women uh, on their workforce, and their uh, numbers of women passengers have gone up as well. So you can make, I think, companies think beyond their self-interest uh, as well, um, because they, have a, they can see that there is actually the profit motive could be even better served uh, by doing something that's also a good social outcome. Uh, and that's part of the EBRD business model, that we try and do that, try and bring that understanding. Another example would be female entrepreneurs in, again, Turkey, but other, other countries too, who didn't have access to the market, didn't have access to finance. Um, and this I give credit now to some Turkish banks who said this is an underserved part of the market, but we have a problem because our traditional approach to collateral is property. Property is in the husband's name. <laughs> Again, a whole set of female entrepreneurs locked out of the, the uh, market. So we worked very much with those Turkish banks to try and find different ways of, uh, if you like, giving them the confidence they could uh, actually lend to female entrepreneurs without depending on that sort of collateral, depending on the revenue stream instead. And that was a, they had to take a bit more of a risk, but they could see this is a huge opportunity as well because it was an, uh, a you know, market that was missing. 
So I think those are all very important. The NGOs and business partnership, I think uh, that goes on. We try to promote that very strongly. Uh, better in some countries, frankly, where there's a civil so- society tradition than in others. And I, let's be frank about that. I think it's uh, very variable. Uh, I think uh, some of the investment councils that I mentioned, I think they don't have necessarily civil society uh, involvement directly, but the civil society does tend to give comments and participate in some of the debates around that. It's very important for us as, in, as a multilateral institution to try and involve civil society, uh, as I always put it, you know, throughout the assembly line of what we're doing, not just at the end and consulting them when we've actually already decided what to do. And we've been trying to do more of that, including trying to bring them into the discussion about investment climate, about governance. So a lot of the work we're doing on investment climate and governance has come from NGOs in particular pushing those agendas as well, as well as businesses. Susuma Chakrabarti, we are very grateful that you were so eager to make up for the missed opportunities of your youth uh, and gave us a very fascinating uh, insight into the work of an important institution, uh, the EBRD, and I hope you all join me in thanking Susuma. Thank you.